Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. Today, we'll be talking to my friend, Chris Reisick, CEO of Renaissance Venture Capital, a leading fund of funds in Michigan. We're going to be talking with Chris about the early days of starting Renaissance and how he shared his learnings with us in Centrifuge in Cincinnati. They have great programming at Renaissance, including their Undemo Day and their Hot List as ways to expose the top venture capitalists to the startup talent here in the Midwest. We'll talk about how this fund of funds model can apply to every major city and the impact that can have on the city and its state. And finally, we're going to talk about Chris's alter ego as author, creator, founder of Soul Tracks. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Reisick. All right. Good morning, Chris Reisick. Welcome to Fast Frontiers. Thanks, Tim. Great to be here with you. I wish the people listening could see the background with your guitars and all that. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I like yours too with the Hitsville, USA. Home yes. That's awesome. We're both big music fans and trying to remember when it was that I discovered and you started sharing with me your involvement with Soul Tracks, which was awesome. Right. And it's amazing. You know, sometimes people, you know, people for years and you don't know all their hobbies, but let's, let's start. I want to get into that. So let's, let's start with a little bit of background. So you and I know each other from 15 to 20 years ago, your early days with Rick Snyder in venture capital, and then uh, started working much more closely together because of Renaissance. I'd love to get into kind of that innovative model, which is maybe one of the first in the country. So if, if you would, why don't you share a little bit of your background and uh, leading up to Renaissance, and then we'll cover Soul Tracks as well. That sounds great. Uh, so my background was uh, I was an undergrad accounting major, went to work at what was then Coopers and Librand, now PricewaterhouseCoopers, went back to law school, came out and was a, an attorney doing middle market sort of corporate startup work for about uh, 12 years. And then out of the blue, I was recruited by Rick Snyder, who later became the the governor of the state of Michigan, uh, but then was the president of Gateway, the old computer company. He recruited me uh, to help him form his first venture capital fund, a fund called Avalon in Michigan. And he and I became, he ultimately recruited me out and we became partners and ran that for almost 10 years. And it's at a time when the largest venture fund in Michigan, I think, was about 15 million. And we came out with a hundred million dollar fund, and it was just a really heady time, 98, 99, 2000. Yes. And and we we were fortunate. We had a couple of unicorns come out of that fund back in 2000, which was great. But ultimately, it was a company, uh, one called Tomotherapy out of Wisconsin. And then a company called Asperion out of Ann Arbor, uh, which right. there is an Asperion now that's a public company. It was that experience and the experience of being a venture capital fund in the middle of the country uh, where you saw the good and the bad. In, in part, I saw opportunity that wasn't fully capitalized on that led to the formation of Renaissance. So I can tell you a bit about Renaissance. Renaissance is a fund of funds. So we invest in venture capital funds, uh, and there are fund of funds all over uh, the place. But Renaissance had this, at the time, rather unique model. We would invest in top-tier venture funds around the country under the condition that they come and look at opportunities in Michigan. Uh, 
having been a venture capitalist in Michigan, I saw the trouble attracting capital, but that there were really good opportunities. A lot of times it was simply a lack of connection with the capital that was on the coast and the opportunities that were in the Midwest. And what happened to companies didn't grow like they should, or they moved, and then sometimes they were able to get the capital. The idea behind Renaissance was create an opportunity to connect local startup companies with capital from wherever. Uh, and then sort of the secret sauce of it was formed Renaissance uh, in partnership with a number of Fortune 1000 and very large private companies who cared about Michigan, who cared about the startup environment, but also were beginning to look for innovation outside their organizations. So our promise to them was we'll invest in funds and get those funds to look at Michigan and, and hopefully grow the startup ecosystem here. But also we will look at those funds and their portfolio and help bring innovation to your major company in areas that are important to you. And that was really the, the innovation that, that Renaissance brought. And this was started, you started this in 2008. So coming out of the recession, great time to start new companies. Oh my gosh, Tim. <laughs> I, 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 I came on board to start Renaissance in October of 2008. It, it, it really, you couldn't have picked a worse time to start it. But, but the incredible thing was we had a, a, a tight time frame to get it raised. So I had to raise $40 million uh, between October and the end of the year. And what's really incredible is the number of major companies, 10 major companies in Michigan that were really hurting at the time, obviously like everybody was, and yet they committed enough to get us going at a time when it would have been very easy for them to say no. And that was in large part due to an organization called Business Leaders for Michigan that was a collection of these major companies and that really helped spearhead the creation of Renaissance. So it, it was really a testament to the vision that these leaders had. So today it's, you've grown quite a bit and uh, which is a evidence of the success. So I describe the, you know, what you look like today in terms of your assets under management and number of funds, et cetera. Sure. We have assets under management of a little over $250 million now. And We've invested in 45 funds around the country, really just about everywhere in the country. We've done a number of innovative things to help attract them to Michigan and help connect them with these major companies. We do an event every year called Undemo Day, working with the universities and the accelerators locally. We identify the 50 most promising startup companies in the state, and we bring them all into one room. And then we invite venture capitalists from around the country. Last year, I think we had around 300 come in from all over the country. And we have a large gathering area where they can go around and, and see these companies present, the startup companies present their, their uh, products or services. But we also curate hundreds of one-on-one -on -one meetings, sort of saying, okay, here's a startup company that's in the cybersecurity area here's three funds that might be good matches. And, and we do these double opt-in meetings and it's been really successful. So our event, we held it last fall, uh, our last on demo day. And we've already had, uh, as far as we know, 10 investments in local companies that came out of meetings that were set up that day. And there's another handful that are, that are still looking and in due diligence. So it's become in Michigan, 
probably the premier event for connecting startup companies with capital. We also do it in the spring, and we create something we call the hot list, which is more virtual. Again, working with the local universities, et cetera, we identify 50 or 60 startups, and then we push information on them, pretty rich information out to our venture capital contacts around the country. I think we sent it out to a little over 1,000 VCs this spring, about, about a month ago. And those meetings have begun even in a time of pandemic. I guess having something virtual in the spring worked out kind of well for us this year. So on Demo Day and the hot list have been really important things. Um, the other uh, area we focus on is, again, helping to connect these startup companies with major companies who could become first customers. We do that throughout the year, but right now we're planning an event that we'll be doing a private event later in the summer that will be focused on cybersecurity. We'll probably have 12 to 15 Fortune 1000 companies and 15 to 20 startup companies connecting virtually uh, to see if there is a connection there that could lead to a, a customer relationship, which would be really important to the startups. Great. So, and you're, and, and to clarify, this is what role does the state play in Renaissance? We are completely a private organization. So we were formed in partnership with major corporations, and we certainly uh, do a lot of work with the state economic development agency and and try to help them, and and you know they participate in some of our events, but our actions are completely independent of the state. You've been an inspiration. Your model's been a has been an inspiration to a lot of others, including including me when I was asked in at the end of 2012 to help start Centrifuge in Cincinnati. And yeah, full disclosure, uh, you and I talked and you helped convince me to do it and had served on the investment committee at Centrifuge, which I always appreciate. And I and I think part of what you and I learned in doing that, obviously we traded a lot of ideas. One thing we learned is we're not really competing with each other, right? That there's there we, we by collaborating and learning from each other, we made a lot more progress than by thinking that you know Ohio and Michigan are are, are in competition uh, for the talent and ideas. And uh, I think that was that's something I'm really proud of, and I think really helped grow both of our communities. Absolutely, I can't tell you how much once Centrifuge started and you began running it, I can't tell you how helpful that became to us. Uh, you made a number of introductions for us to some funds that we ultimately invested in, but even some of the other ideas you had, you did, you created something called Immersion Days in Cincinnati, which were really successful ways to bring out-of-town funds in into the state and really immerse them into your community over a 24 or 48-hour period, and we absolutely stole that and started running that in Michigan. And it was a, it was a great addition to the, the things we did. And it was a, it was a good learning uh, from Centrifuge. More recently, the HX Fund in Houston was formed with the same model after talking to us and talking with you. And, and I serve on their investment committee down there. And similarly, we've learned a lot of things from them. And uh, we've introduced uh, possible investments together. We've shared ideas. Uh, it, my dream would be for there to be a dozen other funds like Centrifuge and Renaissance around the country, and, and with each one, we'd all get better. Good. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is there any reason why, you know, 
every major MSA region in the country you know, around some major cities shouldn't have this model? I think it, it could work in a number of places. You know, the, the key elements are having local talent, the idea of having major corporations around there that can participate. And it certainly helps to have a research university uh, in the region as a source of new technology. Uh, so there are a number of places. In fact, honestly, when you and I get off, I have a call with another region of the country that contacted us last week about wanting to adopt the model. I think that's really important, you know, to share that learning. I always say like in Silicon Valley, there's, they have faster uh, feedback loops, faster learning loops, right? So it, there's a higher density, they learn faster. In the rest of the country, we're disconnected, right? So we have to be very purposeful in connecting and learning from each other because we're not going to do everything right. And uh, there have a lot, of, there have been a lot of things that you've done right. I'm sure there are also some challenges or things that that still maybe frustrate you that that still need to be addressed. Can you can you share what some of those might be? Things that you're still trying to figure out. Sure. I mean, there one of the big issues in the middle of the country has been sort of a cultural issue. Silicon Valley is 20 years ahead of us in 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 creating this startup culture, and that's why it's been so successful. Right? People aren't born smarter in Silicon Valley, uh, but there is a culture there uh, that pushes the notion of startups and risk taking, et cetera. You know, if you look back a century. Detroit was the Silicon Valley of the early 20th century, uh, really focused around mobility. And there were startup companies and there was risk taking and all that. And, you know, for better or worse, we got pretty successful uh, and got bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where it became a big company town as opposed to a startup town. And with it came sort of a risk averse nature. Uh, and and that, that sort of hurt the the sort of scrappiness that uh, was a big part of what made Detroit and, and Michigan great. So when we, when I started in venture 20 something years ago, it was facing that sort of cultural issue. Trying to attract talent wasn't easy because given the choice of going to a startup or to a major auto company with secure benefits and all that, culturally, a lot of times the choice was to go to the big company. And that's something that we fought. 2008, 2009 opened a lot of eyes and maybe changed the perception of risk. Big companies had risk just like small companies did. There were lots of layoffs and all over the place. And But we, we still battle that uh, to a certain extent, I think, throughout the Midwest in, in sort of creating that fast-moving startup culture. And I know you've seen it uh, a lot in Cincinnati and uh, you know, you ran a company that had both Cincinnati and West Coast elements to it. Yeah, I think what I've noticed, and there's plenty of examples of people, the talent and the ideas starting in the Midwest. Uh, GitHub is an example, right? Microsoft bought it a couple of years ago for $7.5 billion. One of the co-founders was a, a basically a dropout from University of Cincinnati. Obviously, they went to the West Coast and that led to success, but people, I think, assume right away that it was because of capital. And I think it's actually a broader thing, which is, expectations. They're surrounded with people who share their expectations for success. And too many times I think, you know, you get somebody young and optimistic and, you know, just naive enough to run a company, which is what it takes. And they, you know, maybe get taken down a rung or two 
by the community, local community investors, like, Hey, it's okay to double growth. And you know, that that's fine. And, and, you know, don't be so crazy to think you can create a billion dollar company. You know, I've seen that, that sort of attitude. So it's, it's not just the entrepreneurs, right? So what, what, what have you seen in terms of the impact that you've had by bringing the other funds in, in those expectations and capabilities of investors in Michigan? I think bringing those investors in has not only helped startups, and it certainly helps startups to get a broader view and, and, and as you say, sort of a higher expectations. It's also helped some of the local venture funds who connected with them, who are in you know, a Midwest sort of environment, getting exposure to people who are seeing something broader or different, I think has, has helped both of those communities. One of the other things has been, you know, uh, in in the Bible, they talk about Abraham's descendants being, you know, as 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 uh, numerous as the stars. Mm-hmm. And w- what's happened is where we're at, and you've seen it in other places like Indianapolis, and you're seeing it in Cincinnati, is the idea of a couple founders who really are shooting for the stars. They create a success story that becomes really an inspiration locally. So I mentioned Asperion. Asperion was a company uh, that we were involved in that in the early 2000s sold to Pfizer for $1.3 billion. And what we saw from come from that were, were directly from senior people of that organization, we saw 10 different healthcare startups formed, raising hundreds of millions of dollars. People who had been through that experience and and that fast rise and you know, rocket ship growth, and they formed a number of successful companies. More recently, uh, we had in Michigan Duo Security, which is sort of the IT equivalent right. of Asperion, sold for over $2 billion. And we've seen over the past couple of years, about a half a dozen startup companies formed by former executives at Duo. And I think we're going to see, by the time this is done, we're going to see dozens and so that alone creates new startups, but also the inspiration of seeing Doug Song, who was the founder of, of Duo, uh, speaking in the community and really inspiring people to have bigger visions for what they can accomplish. Those have been really important too. What are some myths that you see that you'd like to, to squash or bust uh, about uh, entrepreneurship and investing in the Midwest? I think the first one would be that sort of only good ideas come from the coast. And you talked about it that a minute ago. There, we've seen a number of successful companies formed out of technology developed at universities here or from the community here. Some of them have ended up going elsewhere. I mean, Larry Page graduated from University of Michigan, right? Uh, and you know, went to California to, to start Google. The ideas come from everywhere. It is where can you grow them? And so that, the first myth is that ideas only come from one spot. The second is that talent is concentrated. You know, Michigan has three times the concentration of mechanical engineers that any other place in the country has. It also has the highest concentration of electrical engineers per capita than any place in the country. So there is a lot of engineering talent where we're at. And I don't know that. That is something that people would expect, but 
you know, in a state that has made things forever, of course, there's going to be a concentration of electrical engineers and mechanical engineers. And so from a talent standpoint, you find that, and not just in Michigan, you find that in Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, you see these, these high concentrations of engineers, and they're the ones, you know, that are largely driving the technology uh, going forward. The other thing is from a customer standpoint, these, we talked about first customers, that's super important. And if you, you know, took Detroit and do a 300 mile, you know, uh, circle around Detroit, you would see uh, a surprising number of major buyers for major corporations, certainly more concentrated than the population is as a whole uh, in those areas. So the idea that, you know, the elements, which are technology, people, uh, customers, and culture, I mean, those are the big things that we're talking about that create these districts. The first three have been around for a long, long time. And the fourth one has come so far in the past 20 years for all the reasons we've discussed that, you know, it's, you can start, you can create a startup now successfully and create something big in literally dozens of places around the country. Uh, and you won't even be the first one there to have done that. Yeah. So I want to break that down a little bit. The, one of the things you mentioned earlier was immersion days that we started, we started doing it and gave it a name later. And it was um, basically when the, when the VCs came to town to meet with us for the fund of funds, we arranged, you know, a day and a half of visits and we give them a list of, you know, 12 or so startups say, you know, pick which ones you want to meet with. One that was sort of a Midwest hospitality issue, which is we orchestrated, you know, no other cities sort of orchestrated the, the, the VC's trip, right? We did the logistics. Yes. And it was high 80% or so that had never been to Cincinnati, right? And I'm sure you've gotten this feedback as well, but I want, maybe if you have any stories on this, it was always amazing that the, the investors would say, I had no idea. Like they were so impressed with the ideas and and uh, the, the the business plans and the entrepreneurs, but they just had never visited there. Exactly, Tim. I mean, that was really a revelation when we started doing those. And we brought in the universities. We'd bring in University of Michigan's tech transfer office, or we'd bring in Michigan State's tech transfer people. And we tried to, it was tough to fit everything into two days because we had major corporate uh, innovation groups meeting with them. We had startups, as you mentioned, meeting with them. We would even have major investors or venture capitalists meeting with them. And then we would have the university technology people meeting with them. And you're right, by the time they were done, really to affirm, they said, we just had no idea all this existed here. And if they were coming from the coast, the notion that a startup could come out of one of these universities and not have 12 venture funds, <laughs> you know, jumping on them, that they could, that, that, you know, that there was less competition right. for if new deals. If it was the that same was also talent, important. right. If it was the same talent at Stanford, they'd be getting term sheets, right? Exactly. And it's exactly. no different talent-wise. And then we took your, your immersion day idea and we actually turned it a little bit. Once we invested in a fund, we would find one of their portfolio companies that appeared to have broad, uh, broad interest. 
And we would do an immersion day, a two or three immersion day immersion day with that startup company where we would tour that company around Michigan and maybe create a dozen meetings with potential customers. We had one we brought in last year. We set up, it was a shorter one. We set up six meetings in two days. Four of them became buyers. Oh my God. There's no way they could I mean, have that was, on their own. They wouldn't have gotten any of those meetings otherwise. Wow. And these were, you know, again, Fortune 1000 companies yeah. who said, we've been looking for a solution like this. We will immediately do a pilot with you. Who are some, who are your biggest corporate partners? Can you just name some of them? Sure. Some of our partners include uh, DTE Energy, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, Meyer, the grocery store uh, chain, Lazy Boy uh, is another one, Whirlpool, uh, Masco, Ford. So a lot of very familiar household names uh, have been involved with us uh, many since the beginning. Yeah, that's what. And tell me if you've seen this. The uh, I know when we were starting Centrifuge and the corporations were saying, "Hey, we got to solve this capital problem." I remember having this discussion several times. I said, "The startups really—it's not a capital problem. They have a customer problem. Like, if mm-hmm. you can have customers, if we—if you can become customers, they'll have no problem raising the money." So the customers right. actually come first, not the capital. Have you That's seen right. that? That's right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've had a number of cases where one of our investors became really the first pilot customer. And, and as you know, that kind of validation, that market validation is typically the toughest thing to do. That's right. You know, if you think about all the risks that an investor is looking at, they're looking at people risks. They're looking at you know, technology and product risk, and they're looking at market risk. The first two are pretty straightforward, and VCs are really good at figuring that out. The third one is where they need outside people validating it, and that's what these do. The idea that uh, uh, you know, a Meyer would come in and say, this is something that is important to us, and we think it's important to the industry. We will pay for a pilot. Um, I mean, that's a pretty important validation. Yeah. So how has, so speaking of fast frontiers and you being on the frontier uh, in a number of different ways, both geographically, potentially, as well as in terms of the model itself, right? In terms of building that network and the capital, how has that changed the investor landscape throughout Michigan? What have you seen? Have there been in terms of new fund formation or seed investors, et cetera? It's uh, it's changing in a couple ways, you know, and this goes to something we, you and I were talking about a few minutes ago. You know, everybody looks at Silicon Valley and says, I want one of those. But there's one thing that this has demonstrated, and I, I think you've seen it too, is there's one Silicon Valley. Right? So in order for us to do this in Michigan, we have to sort of Michiganize that. It has to fit with who we are. And so it's going to grow differently in Michigan than it is in Ohio, than it is in Texas, than it is in Colorado. Certainly all of them different than, than Silicon Valley. So what we've seen sort of this Midwest sort of way, the growth in Michigan has been very Michigan-like. It's not as cutthroat as on the coast. They're more of a confidence than we saw a dozen years ago when we were starting Renaissance, that this can be done. We've also seen growth 
if you look when we started Renaissance, Michigan was doing maybe 150 to 200 million of venture capital a year back then. Last year it did 800 million, biggest year by far uh, in Michigan history. And it's been a really interesting combination of growth of local firms. And we have about 23, 24 venture funds in Michigan right now active. I would say the biggest thing has been Michigan becoming a destination location for out-of-state funds. And that's really what we've focused on at Renaissance is getting funds that would not have looked at Michigan before to come in and look at Michigan. And, And so a big part of that growth has been funds that they're doing their first or their second investment in Michigan. And when you have successes like we've had over the past few years with Duo or with Lamasoft and a number of others, Spirion too, all of a sudden Michigan becomes a place to invest. And so NEA came in and did their first deal in Michigan, you know, things like that. Yeah. So there's two things there. There's I want to probe with you. Um, one is, and I've heard this a lot from other LPs and funds, you know, there's so much competition in Silicon Valley. And they're all competing for the same deals. And to differentiate yourself as a coastal firm, having some scouting and having the ability to get into some deals that could do a security that up, that your other you know, competitors in the Valley aren't in is a, is a big advantage, right? So I've heard from most funds that they're very interested in having that capability. They're not likely to have an office there, however, right? So they need those local, right. those local uh, sources. But there are some limitations, and it kind of relates to the the stage and profile of the startups and, and the venture firms. So, so can you first start with what's the profile of the venture firm and who are some of the most active firms you've seen in Michigan by stage? Are these seed funds, early stage, late stage? What works best? You know, it's it's difficult for a firm that is on the coast to lead and to lead a seed deal here just because of the amount of work and and on on the ground that you have to do. So in order for them to participate early, there typically has to be a local investor that they can trust. And it just so happens here, most of the funds, in some reason, in some ways because of size, they're doing seed and and early stage deals and then are looking for co-investors from outside of Michigan when the startup needs a 10 or $20 million round. So it's kind of naturally worked that way. You know, part of, uh, part of the goal that we have is to take these strong local funds that are doing early stage and connect them with major funds from the coast and from areas like that, who simply can't do a, a, a seed deal by themselves or can't do a seed deal at all, but are gonna be there when the company's growing and uh, they're going to get really involved when they can write a $10 million check. Uh, so it works in a couple ways. Sometimes they're, the coastal firms are willing to write a $200,000 seed check as long as they're alongside a local fund that they trust. Um, probably more often what we're seeing is they're coming in at a bigger series A or series B round of funding when they can jump in with the kind of check that they typically um, right. I mean, a great story last year was Revolution Ventures uh, out of D.C., which was started by Steve Case. They came in to Detroit and we got to know them and they came in to Detroit, found a company called Bloomscape, 
that had raised some local money, but now was raising a sizable round, I think an eight or nine million dollar round. And it was a perfect time for Revolution to come in. They got comfortable with the local investors and they came in and led that big round. And that company in the past year, I think, has tripled in, in its growth. So it's been exactly the kind of scenario that we hope to help facilitate where a fund can come in at a time that it makes sense for them. What I like about their model is they're investing alongside. They're not trying to crowd out the local investors. They're, they're, they're participating with the local investors to build that network, which I think is really smart. So one of the things that's been a challenge, I know it was a challenge for us at Centrifuge, and I'm sure you face it too, is this, this fund-to-fund model is a little bit more indirect, right? It's a, it's a little more subtle. Yeah. It's, it's not, hey, let's set up $200 million you know, dedicated just to Michigan. Uh, and so it takes a little bit more education and and puts a little bit more of a burden on you in terms of metrics and impact. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, you've invested in 45 funds, I think you said, like how many have invested in Michigan companies and and what are the metrics and how do you explain this to people in Michigan about the impact that you're having? I mean, you're right. The, the, the fund to funds model, it, it takes a lot more talking to 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 explain it. Everybody's seen Shark Tank and so you know, that's the often the model they think of, right? And in a fund of funds, you are, you're one step removed. You have to explain first that you're not going to really be investing directly into startup companies. So in some ways, you're not going to be going narrow and deep where you're investing in 10 startup companies and, you know, there every day with them. Instead, you're going broad. You know, we invest in 45 funds. So far, we have about 650 companies that we have stakes in. Um, so it's a different sort of explanation. No one company of those 600 is going to return two times our fund, which you often see in a venture fund. The flip side is no one company is going to cause a dramatic loss to us either. So in a way, it's like owning a mutual fund of venture capital. So there's that investment piece, which is, which we have to explain. Who are some of the funds that people should know about in Michigan? I think, you know, right away, people think of Dan Gilbert when you think of Michigan or Detroit. Maybe talk a little bit about what he's done, how you collaborate with, with them and his organization, but also who are some of the other funds that people may not know about that are doing a great job? So the largest fund uh, in Michigan is Arboretum Ventures, healthcare fund focusing mostly on on uh, de- medical devices and healthcare IT, uh, and they've had a, they've been around since about 2002. They've done a great job. In fact, you know this is a rarity. The immediate outgoing chair of the National Venture Capital Association is Jan Garfinkel, who is the founding partner of Arboretum. So the notion that a Michigan fund could have the chair of the National Venture Capital Association was really uh, something unexpected and terrific. And so they've been, they've been a very good fund. A few other funds, Plymouth Ventures, which is more of a later stage, IT, IT services, some healthcare fund. Uh, they've done quite well. Other funds include RPM Ventures, uh, Beringia uh, Ventures, eLab Ventures, and uh, you know, quite a few really mid, I would say mid-size funds, a number of firms in between say 20 million and 100 million in size. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the sweet spot in Michigan. 
uh, right now. Venture Investors, uh, which is a Wisconsin fund, also has a, a their, their managing partner now is in Michigan. You know, it's a growing it's a growing area, but we're still at the point I would say where most funds I'd consider small funds when you look at, at you know the national landscape. And, and what about Dan Gilbert and what they've done and what kind of impact and and have they had in the area? From your point of view, well, Dan Gilbert has probably been the single most important force in the rebirth of Detroit. Uh, he's he has, I, I believe, a hundred buildings in the downtown area that he has purchased and refurbished, and they're pretty much full right now. He's brought in his suppliers to open up offices in downtown. He's also helped create a number of businesses. Uh, for those listening who don't know, Dan uh, Dan Gilbert's the owner of Rocket Mortgage and Quicken Loans. Uh, so his Rocket Mortgage and Quicken Loans and their affiliated companies and the title and, and, and other areas, I think they employ about 15,000 people in Detroit. And to give a sense, 10 years ago, they had zero employees in Detroit. So that's been a real uh, big change for downtown. And he's really staked his entire fortune on helping Detroit. So he's certainly been a major force. He also created uh, a venture fund that helped uh, bring in companies from out of state, helped start up companies. I would say more recently, they've served a role of supporting as a customer other companies. They still do invest, but a big part of what they do is becoming uh, an important customer, uh, especially because they now have their own family of Quicken-related companies that have their own needs, and, and it really can help a startup company be successful. So there is a startup scene in Detroit, which didn't exist a few years ago, largely due to Dan Gilbert, largely due to TechTown, which is a, the Wayne State uh, University accelerator. And there have been a number of homegrown accelerators and co-working spaces that have played a role too. But no question, Dan Gilbert has probably been the most important force uh, in Detroit. You have a, you just mentioned uh, Wayne State. What sort of uh, relationship and collaboration do you have with the universities throughout the state? So I actually uh, chair the executive committee of Wayne State's Accelerator, uh, which is uh, TechTown, uh, and which is a really interesting organization focusing on a lot of high tech acceleration, like many others do. But I would say over half of their work now is creating uh, is in the neighborhoods creating more lifestyle startup companies and really helping entrepreneurship generally in Detroit. So that uh, so that has been uh, you know an important thing in Detroit. From the Renaissance standpoint, we're really closely connected with all the universities in the state. So I sit on University of Michigan's Tech Transfer Board, and I'm chairing the investment committee of their new seed fund that University of Michigan just announced called Accelerate Blue. We have an office located at Michigan State University in East Lansing, where we're together with their tech transfer team and their and their foundation team. Um, we do work even up in the Upper Peninsula with Michigan Tech. Uh, we have uh, one of our success stories was a Michigan Technological University spin-out company called Orbion that we helped introduce to a, uh, a Boston firm, Material Impact Fund, and they invested company doing rocket propulsion. So 
we have a really strong relationship with all the research universities in the state. And when we come up with our hot list every year and we do our Endemo Day, a big part of it is due to what's been fed to us you know, from the university tech transfer offices as their most promising companies. All right. So to wrap up, let's we what we didn't get back to is SoulTrack. So tell us okay. more about when you started SoulTrack. Yeah, SoulTrack is the top uh, is the number one soul music site in the country. When I was uh, in college, I was writing. I'm from being from Michigan, especially in the shadow of Detroit. You can't help but have liked soul music because I grew up sort of during the Motown mm-hmm. era, and um, so I, I was a writer in college, uh, reviewers a reviewer and had a career decision to make. And I made the decision to do accounting and law, which was probably the right one. I don't think the, the music reviewing world lost anything for those years that, that I was doing that. But when the internet came, uh, I had a concept. As a fan, I would try to get out there and read about this topic of soul music that I loved. And I was really dissatisfied as a fan. So I wrote a few articles just for fun out of the blue was contacted by Sirius XM radio. They said they liked my writing and asked if I would do a show. Um, I did a couple of shows there that wasn't really that fun for me. What I really wanted to do was write. So I taught myself how to build a website and just started writing reviews and biographies of sort of long lost artists who I felt were underrepresented on the web. And one thing led to another over time, Google sort of found my site, Soul Tracks, and started getting traffic, started spending more time. At some point, began to hire writers. Uh, advertisers contacted me and wanted to be on it. And you know, so we created this little sort of family business. My kids have all worked on it. My wife worked on it. Uh, right now, we have about eight writers around the world who write for us. And soultracks.com, CKS, not, not X. And uh, run about we run two or three new stories every day, and uh, it's just been a real blessing to me because it's it's my passion. You know, I spend a couple hours every night and most of the weekends writing or reading or listening, and I've gotten to meet all these artists who I've loved for years. I've gotten to know them, and I'm also I feel from a from a passion standpoint the notion that soul music right now is is a pretty small niche doesn't get played on popular radio so how do music fans discover it mm-hmm. that's ultimately the goal of soul tracks is help these artists most of whom are independent they're not signed to major labels how can they connect with an audience and that's what we do we help introduce their music to an audience that will be interested in that music and those connections might not ever exist otherwise exist. It's similar kind of what we're talking about with Renaissance, helping local startups meet venture funds, the connections that might not exist. Soultrax is sort of doing that with music fans and music that deserves to be heard. And right now, Tim, at a time when they can't perform publicly, yeah. I mean, it's so difficult for artists. You know, we've seen our traffic go up and we're actually working harder because if artists can't play live to an audience, how do they stay connected with their audience? And so, you know, what we're kind of doing, you know, connecting them in the ways we can becomes even more important, but it's obviously a very tough time for artists right now. Well, we'll get through it. And I hope 
hopefully there are some good ideas that come out of trying to figure out how to connect with fans virtually because that'll last too, right? So we want yeah. we want both. We want yeah. better connectivity right. and and the live music. So, well, thank you very much, Chris, for taking the time and sharing with everybody your background and success in Michigan. I wish you all the best. Thanks, Tim, and, and great luck with the podcast. I think this is really needed, and you're a really good interviewer, so thanks for, for doing oh, this. Oh, wow, wow. Thank you, thank you. All right, Chris, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Yuval Brisker, former founder and CEO of Toa Technologies.